Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the Go Time FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelog.com slash live or subscribe at changelog.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello there, and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya, and welcome to a very special fireside edition of Go Time, where we essentially just get very close to the microphone. It's very intimate. Um, we'll be chatting with each other and asking each other questions, and also taking your questions. Uh, you can tweet at us if you tweet at me at Matt Raya, M A T R Y E R. I'll ask your question on the show, or you can join in the conversation on Gopher Slack in the uh, go time fm channel so i'll introduce my fellow hosts today it's jb jc and jd it's johnny borsico john calhoun and yana b dugan mm. hello. hello 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 how are we doing i think we're all doing good <laughs> i hope we're doing good <laughs> well i'm glad to hear it yeah so i thought we could start off i was this is something that i always wonder about other devs because of course we're a busy bunch often if we're lucky we're busy and sometimes we either aren't really able to do side projects for whatever reason in our in our companies or in our day jobs or maybe we just don't have the time or the energy or whatever after doing a full day so given that if you could just have two weeks to to build anything to do anything in go what would you do? Say you've just got two weeks, or if you need more time, you can have it. It's really relaxed. What would you do? Is there anything in mind that you'd build or work on, or is there anything you're interested in exploring? I guess I can kick this one off. So building something isn't necessarily something I'd do. Well, I guess I'd build something. But what I'd more be focused on is I'd love to spend some more time looking at like different aspects of how we design code and just spending more time on that. Specifically... I would love to actually build a project using globals and all sorts of things, like basically just leaving globals everywhere, like a global DB connection, a global set of templates, things like that, and just set it all up and actually write tests for it to sort of show, you know, what that looks like. Is that just to give Peter Borgen an aneurysm? <laughs> no. Um, like, if, if I had the time, what I'd like to do is take that and then gradually refactor it to something that doesn't use the globals and to, like, actually see, you know, in each little refactor, how that changes things and actually see what all, you know, what changes, how the tests change, 
um, how you can like actually tell what's required a little bit better in some areas. And maybe even in some areas, I might find that, you know, globals weren't actually as bad as we made them out to be. Because I know like in my own stuff, there's a couple times where I'll do all this jumping through hoops to make globals not necessary. And Mm. at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know that I actually needed to do this. I think like the one example that always comes to my mind is uh, whenever I'm building a web application where I'm generating HTML from the server, I will have like all this stuff that I do to make my HTML templates not global. And if I just had a global registry of like all my templates that were parsed, it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. But, Mm. you know, I like try to avoid it for all these reasons. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm not really sure it's worth it because when I go to read the files, I often like require them to be in a certain file structure on a local file system in a certain spot to work anyway. So, you know, and like that might be configurable, but there's still like limitations to it. And at the end of the day, it's like, is it really worth making it so they can completely customize the, you know, the file structure of all these template files versus like just put them in the right structure? Yeah, there's that. That is an interesting point. Uh, we we do talk. We tend to talk a lot in terms of absolutes, and we'll say like, don't use global variables as as a general rule, because if you're just getting started, or if you don't want to have to worry too much about some of the other aspects of code, then I can see why these rules help. They guide you and just prevent a kind of whole class of problems. But like with almost everything, and it's rare, and I don't know that there are even any where I would say, absolutely, this is the answer to something. I think there is a lot of gray area and sometimes, yeah, a a global variable is just so easy. And in the context of what you're doing, like this is just my little program uh, that I'm going to run or just me and one other or something. Uh, versus, you know, this is a big open source package, and I think that would change things. But yeah, I can see sometimes that being the case. It's an interesting one. But do you, John, you you do a lot of teaching, don't you? So is your interest in that because you then want to uh, teach people? It, it would partially be that, but I think it's partially just like exploration for myself to see like, is it really worth doing it here? Because I mean, like, I think we get in these habits of like, I do it this way because I've been doing it this way. And sometimes it's like, are the trade-offs of what I'm doing actually worth it? Um, You know, and spending some time exploring that would be useful for like, you know, long-term. But it's just hard to find that time of like, can I find, you know, a couple hours to actually try these two different approaches and see which one's better whenever one's working and like, you know, I've got a lot of other things to do. Yeah, I think the same thing applies to testing as well because I've been through all different, kind of uh, cycles of of TDD and all kinds of things where there's been times when I've been very adamant that everything is red-green tested. So I would have a unit test fail before I write any of of the main program code and be very strict with myself about that. And I found that it had some benefits. But of course, the the, the trade-off was that the tests were so tightly bound to exactly what my program code was it was a little bit like having a test for a CSS file that just says like this text color has to be red. And then in another file, you say, uh, make sure that that text color is red. You're just saying the same thing twice. And that's not quite, that wasn't quite useful. So then I kind of go the other way and look at, uh, let's do a just end to end testing. So don't worry about the internals. As long as the, ev- the whole system works, I know it's working. That had again, benefits and other problems. And one of the downsides to that was you didn't get any kind of laser focus on where things had broken. You just knew that the things weren't working as they should. 
you didn't have much help on where the problems were or or what what the impact was that you'd had that was unexpected. So yeah, and I think I'd do the same thing with what you're talking about, John, so that we we try it with have a little project and unit test it very tightly, have the same project and just have integration tests and then play around somewhere in the middle because probably that's where the perfect solution is somewhere, probably not a perfect solution, but a solution maybe. So, okay, anyone else? What would you build if you could just could do anything? Let me ask you this first then. Can you work on side I mean, projects? Let me put that. Let me talk to my lawyer. Let me talk. <laughs> Hang on, I have, to, I have to text him real quick. Well, so time time you know like when you asked that question i was just thinking man if i had like two weeks of uninterrupted time what i would do with that and really my mind immediately went to teaching because that's something i enjoy doing like a lot but slightly different from sort of the live teaching so recently i've been thinking about okay you enjoy teaching and you enjoy doing it live there's something about sort of seeing that light bulb go on in, in somebody's face, right? There's something about that that's just I just find magical. I enjoy that uh, tremendously, but at the same time, I, I do realize that okay, I'm I'm still one person. How do I how do I scale myself, right, so to speak? <laughs> how do I how do I basically do that? Um, have a sort of wider impact, right? At least the kind of impact I want to have. And I've been thinking, okay, maybe the way to do that is to dive into sort of recorded, you know, courses where, you know, maybe like a YouTube channel and, and try to live up to, you know, the, the, the likes of Francesc and Joseph Funk or something along those lines, you know, basically to try and, and, and sort of, I mean, I'm not going to use, you know, grandiose terms like change the world and uh, any of that nonsense, but basically uh, I'm, I'm basically just to find a way to to reach more people, I think is, is what I would like to do, right? So having recorded courses and, and, you know, making some for free, available for free and, you know, making some for paid as well. Cause, you know, I, I do have a family to, to, to take care of that kind of thing. But really that's where my mind went, just basically trying to find a way to reach more people and, and hopefully serve more people. Yeah. The nice thing is when you teach somebody something, Johnny, um, you, you kind of enable them to then do things that they couldn't do before. So that you get this sort of exponential effect. Uh, and I think that's easy to overlook, but so important. And so, yeah, I think that's great. And I've, I've never been in one of your classes, but I have heard good things about them. So, yeah. Do you tend to do that at conferences then? Yeah, I do. I do them at conferences, usually a pre-conference workshop. And uh, also uh, I do... Um the, the GoBridge workshops. Um, oh, actually, this is a good uh, um, um, time for me to mention that if you live in the Baltimore area, um, there is a GoBridge workshop coming up on the seventh of uh, December next month. So this will be my last my last GoBridge workshop of the year. And uh, basically, I just wanted to sort of um, give give the opportunity for those that are looking to enter the year, um, you know, with with a new skill provide the opportunity, the learning opportunity for them to, to do so. So uh, if, if, if you are listening to this and you know somebody um, in the Baltimore metro area, D.C., Virginia, that kind of thing that could benefit from, from a full day workshop to, to learn Go, um, this, is a, this is a great opportunity to do so. Mm. And how do they find out more information about that? Well, they would go to uh, gobridge.org, um, and uh, that will probably link them to to the GitHub repository. I've, I've forgot we, we we changed that now. 
actually, if you go on meetup.com and you look for the Baltimore Go meetup, mm-hmm. um, that is one of the events listed. So um, you can you, know, you can just either Google for it or go to meetup.com um, slash Baltimore Go. I think Baltimore Go Lang um, for to make it easier to find. Um, and then basically you'll see you'll see the event and, and if you are in a target demographic. Um, I encourage you to sign up. Great. Awesome stuff. These are good answers so far. Um, <laughs> another question I had was, what's the thing if you had to pick, which you do, is the thing that grinds I your... I still have to answer, Matt. Well, yeah, don't forget oh. about Yana. Oh, sorry. I, I, I just assumed that... <laughs> if you run uh, out of time, it's actually okay. Um, this question really hit me hard because I have exactly two weeks at the end of this year to do whatever I want to do. Oh. Ooh. And the question is, mm. probably I will use Go, right, if I want to write code. And the question is, what am I going to do? This is more of like an existential crisis type of question for me, probably. <laughs> there was like one crazy idea <laughs> I had for a long time. I was wondering if it's possible to highlight some of the concurrency-related stuff in a text editor. Like, imagine if a library, if like, you're making a call, it starts a go routine, whatever. You just don't know from the API surface. But it, you know, just starts a go routine, just runs some stuff in other go routines and whatever. I wonder if we can synth- like mm. highlight in the editor that, oh, some of the pieces here in this block is just going to run in a different go routine or may run in a different go routine or whatever. So I was like thinking about this dynamic tool. You just run your program, it just like, you know maybe collect some profile or whatever. And then you apply that profile to your text editor and it gives you all this like different colors. Like this has been run in this like different go routines and so on. So it like helps you to, it's not like a mm. perfect solution, but it could be a good experimentation point and may kind of like influence maybe some other people to work on this type of problem. Because, um, you know, we had this discussion last week there is no good way to say, hey, I'm just going to run some stuff in a different Go routine. Uh, some libraries are doing a good job documenting this, but some others don't. So that, that's an interesting area to, you know, work on. Yeah. Would it, would it look like the code coverage stuff where the background kind of changes color? So you might see like red would be used for the main thread, but you kicked off a Go routine somewhere and you can exactly. see Exactly. It's the same idea. Yeah. Is that, is that what... um, and you run, you run the program. Right. It only can capture, just like the test coverage, it can only, test coverage can only capture the tests you're running. You know, it just kind of like goes over those lines as it's running. So it's going to be the same. Um, you run your program, it will only capture the cases that like you actually executed, but it might give you some hints, like maybe, I don't know, maybe over time, maybe it could be an incremental thing. Uh, maybe it could be even like a global repository of something. It, this is just like a very rough idea. I just want to, you know, experiment. And it sounds cool. Thanks. Thanks. I don't know his uh, last name. I will look it up. But um, there's a great talk by Ivan uh, about visualizing concurrency. I don't know if you've seen exactly that. from the GopherCon a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. So anyone, if you haven't seen that, check that out. It is it is amazing and and. I chat to him every time I see him at conferences and he was kind of talking about maybe even like uh, augmented reality or virtual wow. reality ways of, of, of visualizing. You're just like basically running into your Go routines and all that stuff. Yeah, you'd be inside somehow and see the things around you. 
let's see the you know and maybe maybe you'd be able to actually see hot spots mm. i don't know if if we could somehow visualize the contention or something like that imagine being able to go and actually look and see heat spots of where there's things in contention or something i don't know but yeah it was amazing just to see things in 3d to be honest like i've seen like visualization tools only in 2d but it made so much sense because you have like one level of more dimension when there's concurrency and you know it was like i think the right Mm. model so i'm really excited about the virtual reality thing yeah it finally makes us look like the hackers from the movies as well yeah you know what i mean where yeah it's like a 3d cube and we'll complete the cube and that's when we know we're finished do you know what i mean like there's no scope creep in that world everything's it's just when the cube's done we're done and we can go home well that's all that's all we want isn't it is that what you built would build it through two weeks matt some way for us to code in a 3d world well, uh, uh, people have kind of played around with it a little bit. It is a kind of uh, quite an exciting thing. Even just thinking of having a um, a virtual reality headset and then having m- many monitors in front of you. I mean, it's the most boring possible use of that technology, but it could be essentially like and and you could mix it with the you know what's actually being seen as well so that it isn't just like screens only but you can have other backgrounds i guess and things it could look it's going to look nice basically put it that way we're getting off topic slightly i guess but that's okay (laughs) um i saw one cool vr demo where somebody had it where like you actually just saw a a javascript like editor you were coding in but like when you made like 3d models and things like that you'd actually just look to your right and you would see it actually rendering it oh yeah so it was like the coolest like use case where it's Playground. like yeah you just get to see it in 3d and you can like walk or you know move around and sort of see the thing and like i see stuff like that and i'm like all right vr could be awesome if we get there mm. it's just it's gonna take some time sadly yeah probably but they're working on it aren't they let's hope <laughs> <laughs> all right now matt i suppose you can go to your question yeah well i was gonna ask about if there's anything in go that that would uh, grind one's gears as it were that's what the kids say these days, I think. <laughs> I actually had to look it up. I actually had to look it up just to make sure that it means what I <laughs> assume it means. <laughs> oh, no. Is that sure, right? yeah. Oh, I need, to really be, I need to really think more about it before I speak. I, I think it's hard as a native English speaker, like all the random phrases and stuff like that that don't necessarily make sense out of, like if you aren't used to them. This is kind of like obvious. I mean, it's not that obvious. I mean, it's obvious. You can guess, right? I don't know, actually. That's the that's a good question. I'm I'm annoyed by anyone that speaks uh, multiple languages, so I can't really imagine what that's like. So I don't know. Is the, is the honest answer? I like hearing phrases in other languages translated, but and and you don't have any of the context or anything. They are brilliant. They have, some of them are absolutely brilliant. I should give you a listen, like, I can score you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should, def- that's a, we should do that on Twitter. Yeah. That's hilarious. We should, <laughs> we should definitely start that. So speaking of grinding gears, what's the thing that annoys you the most about Go? That was another question I thought might be an interesting one to chat about. I have a uh, couple of things. I mean, I actually have one specific thing, shadowing. You know, there's like all these like convenience stuff for error types and then it just sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work, or it doesn't quite work what I want it to work like. So it's just very inconsistent. How would you change it then? Would you just disallow it? So if you try to use it, it says 
you know, this variable's already been used in another block, or do you allow it? Um, what would you do? How would you change it? So currently, they only allow shadowing of errors, right? So if they take it further to allow people to, you know, for convenience to shadow the, the other uh, variables, I think it would be way too much. So I would say that, like, I think mm. it's fair as it is, but it's annoying um, because it gives me this, like, inconsistency. I can see, like, there's no other way to do this. They can completely disable it. And that would be such an inconvenient thing because, you know, you have, like, errors all around. So you want to be sometimes want to, you know, sh- shadow it for the convenience. But it's just, like, annoying. Mm. And sometimes I need to declare the variable and sometimes I don't. It's just, like, I don't know. Like, I really don't like how inconsistent it sometimes looks and people are just copy pasting the style sometimes like and they're just assuming that that's the only way to do or whatever so like you know not my taste maybe yeah that that thing sometimes when you have to switch the colon equals with the equals things things like those little things and also not being able to declare a variable without using it has great kind of foundations but when as you're in in the weeds of something Sometimes, you know, it would be nice to be able to just declare a variable and just don't use it. Take it out. If the compiler knows you've not used this variable, just take it out. <laughs> just know what I mean? I know, like, put a warning on or something, but just pop it out. Don't worry about it. That would be my advice. I suspect some of that stems from what knowing what imports you have and all that stuff. Like, it leads to a lot mm. more things. Yes, um, yes. I'm it's sure. also, like, the shadowing stuff can be annoying, like you said. If, if some code changes and now all of a sudden the colon equals doesn't work, it can be annoying when like you have to change a line that has nothing to do with the PR like or what you're yeah. changing. So it's just like, why did you change this line? It's like the code will not work without me changing mm-hmm. that line. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. Th- that's why I like the extra comma at the end of lists because you can you can just change lines. You don't have to go and reformat another line in an unrelated way. Yeah, completely agree with that. My, I wouldn't say it grinds in my gear <laughs> as, well, I know. as much not, as... Not cool enough. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps that's not cool enough. Yeah. Um, it's um, kind of closely related to that is uh, to what Yano was, uh, was saying is that uh, um, I, I see it often, especially I think the typical example that's given is like if you're if you're in a for loop, right? You have an iterator, you have an i variable or something, and then uh, you have you're, you're launching a go routine and it's out of there. It because of the, the the closure that happens over the variable, you think you can actually use the iterator right inside of your inside of your grow routine inside of your function, and then not realizing that basically you're you're not really using a copy of that variable, basically you're using the same reference to it. So your your grow routines end up sort of stepping all over each other, right? So I've seen like code like that sort of uh, pop up enough times that, that I don't quite have a solution that you know for it, but it's just something that's happens often enough and I'm not sure a way around that other than sort of teaching people to hey this is actually what happens when you you know because of the closure and if you don't pass in a copy of this variable you know you're not really you know it's, 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 you're gonna get unexpected results right so we could probably detect that and I bet is there a linter or something that warns or some warning tool that checks that I feel like that would be be able to detect that statically hmm I don't know. I don't know if there are or not. It wouldn't shock me if it's possible to detect, but the, the, one of the issues you run into there is that a beginner who is most likely to run into the issue is the least likely person to have that linter set up. So it's like <laughs> you're solving a problem that by the time they know to use that tool, they don't necessarily have the problem. Right. So we need to time travel <laughs> packages. 
packages that <laughs> time travel enabled. It would almost have to be like built into stuff, which I don't know. I don't know how that would work. It's not to say that there couldn't be a solution, but. Right. So instead of doing time travel as a package, you think it should be built in. That, you think that's the challenge with doing time travel code. I'm just going to ignore you, man. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, fair enough. So I know like for me, one of the things that kind of gets me at times, and this is like a very minor grief, but like I, I like avoid using inline structs or, you know, when you just define a struct, you know, inside of something, there are a lot of times where I'll avoid doing that simply because like recreating that type then later becomes slightly more annoying. Like you can't just construct the whole thing without being like, oh, and I have a struct here and here are all the fields. And then I have to, you know, it just seems like so much extra work at times. So like, it would be nice if there was an easier way to do that because I do think reading inline structs is very useful at times. Like there's all sorts of cases where I'm like, I don't actually need another type. I could just throw this in there. It's just sort of nested data in this type. So that's the type of thing that it would be nice to simplify some of that. And it must be able to do that because they're, they're statically typed so it knows the type doesn't it of the compile time yeah like you can do like var t thing and then like you can do t dot you know dot a dot b dot c equals something and like it gives them all zero values so like it definitely knows that it's there it's just a matter of like when you're con- you know declaring it or setting it up it's it's you have to do it a slightly different way which I just don't like that it leads to code that it's like, why did you do it this way this time? It's like, well, because I'm using these nested things, it looks a little bit weird if I have to do it that way. Yeah, again, the same thing. It's nice for the code. To, if, if you're doing something, it's nice for there to be a reason for it, not just thing, make things happy. Yeah. <laughs> happy is good. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. So next question. Yes. Unless you have something, Matt, you wanted to talk about that grinds your gears. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. Nothing. I don't use that phrase, actually. <laughs> so, um, Try not to. so since I'm working in a bright pink room right now, or recording from one, <laughs> and if you haven't seen the tweet, you can go check that out. Basically, the question is, what is your ideal working environment? And that can be room, you know, like, uh, you know, basically anything, like open work environment, you know, open space versus a clo- you know, an office, headphones, you know, what type of music, anything like that. I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you guys prefer? What makes you productive? Definitely not open spaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the first thing I thought, too. 
Definitely not open plan offices. I have a feeling that they're just like way cheaper or something. Like there's just a really obvious reason why they exist. I think it, it depends sometimes. Like sometimes in the beginning of a project, you just like want to design, you want to just, you know, discuss like for hours or hours and whatever. I mean, it's nice if you can just go to a meeting room, whatever, but like sometimes you want to be in the same environment and still keep, you know, debating or whatever. But, you know, open space is also not really good for this type of stuff because you don't want to disturb the people around you. But maybe uh, I've seen this other model, mm. um, this like old school offices for four or five people. You just put the team in, um, you know, you're like immediate peers and you are working from the same office. It has doors and everything. So you can actually, you know, close the door. You can have as many meetings as possible <laughs> if that's what you're going for. So I really personally like my sofa a lot. And recently, I realized that I'm like way mm. more productive when I'm working from home uh, because, it, you know, I don't have any interruptions mm. or anything. Yeah. I still think the open office space was like a recruiting tactic. Why? Because like as, as a new college grad, if you walk into an office space with a bunch of cubicles and then you walk into like an open space like Facebook office or something, the one just seems like a much like more like it seems like a better environment from where you're coming from. Like you don't necessarily because you're a fool. Yeah, because, like you don't know any better at that point. <laughs> and like a lot of the companies I've seen push them hire a lot of new grads. So like it's almost like they're like <laughs> optimizing for that in some ways. I don't know if that's actually true, but it seems that way. Because I've worked in the cubicle spaces, and I, I get when you walk in the office, you're like, this looks kind of like corporate and boring and like not cool. But at the same time, it's nice to be able to sit down and be like, this is my space. Like nobody's bugging me. I don't hear as much. So I'm going to speak from experience here because once upon a time, I was in an environment that specifically designed the, the office space to be an open floor plan uh, with uh, glass walls, if you can call them that. Uh, even the conference room was kind of like a, a fishbowl, right? It was glass. And if you walked into the office, as you walked by, even if we were having meetings in, in that office, in that conference room, you know, it was all glass. It looked beautiful. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Could you like write on it? Yes, yes, oh. you could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was meant for that. It was, it was, it was beautiful, and it was basically it was at an agency, a digital agency, right? So there was a lot of sort of uh, creative folks seated all over the place, and when you walked in there, the effect when you walked in there, you could see people working on on illustrations, design work, doing really beautiful stuff, and I think that was part of the reason for that, right? If you bring a prospect into the office. We bring a customer into the office. The impact, right? That 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 brings, like immediately, you get a hit with that. You're like, okay, this this space is serious, right? The coders didn't sit up front. <laughs> the designers <laughs> did because they were doing the cool stuff, right? The coders, I mean, we just look at text all day. There's nothing, you know, appealing about that. Even when you first walk into the office, but you know that that was part of the appeal of it, right? It was like modern looking. It had less of a, a like nice open and airy feel to it. I mean, in your own, if you think about it, if in your own home, I mean, in my home right now, I'd like to knock down a few walls, you know, make it open, make it airy, you know, make it, you know, feng shui or whatever, you know, like, you know, you want that. But, you know, it didn't take long before we quickly realized, okay, this is a sort of a focus killer. If you're trying to get, it, it's, it's fine to look at, but if you're trying to get work done with all the buzzing, the activity, everything going on around you, you just can't get anything done, which is why, you know, it didn't take long. I got a month in, everybody got, you know, noise canceling headphones because you know we just couldn't get anything done how does the uh, visual noise works like is it as disruptive as you know noise 
it's an echoey like noise. You know, somebody could be having like basically you could have two people sitting on the other side of of the office wow. and you could still hear them like if you're on the other end because there's nothing in between. Yeah, it sounds like the entire office was a stage or something. Stage for the customers. You're just running a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was literally it was like a performance. We were performing work. It was it was incredible. I'm a big believer in letting the engineering team decide how it works and I wonder how many would choose that kind of setup. Well, let's not go to the extreme now. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I like the look of the office. I like the feel of the office. It, it did feel like, you know, welcoming in some ways. Uh, Cause I, I sort of, you know, had a penchant towards the, the nice eclectic and sort of modern look. You know, I think these days I've kind of swung back around to the more cozy and, and, and warm kind of feel, but it did have an appeal to it that you walk into the office, you're like, okay, these, these folks are serious, right? So, but you know, it was just that there was a downside to it that we just didn't know because at the time, this, this was like, you know, well over, you know, like a decade and a half ago. At the time, open floor plan was the thing, right? Everybody wanted to have an open floor plan. It was like, you know, articles were being written. You know, it's kind of funny because the same, I don't know if it's the same people, but you know, you used to see articles about how open floor plan is the new ish, right? And then now you're seeing a bunch of articles saying, no, that it's not ish. It's just, you know, <laughs> crap, <laughs> you know, don't do it. I mean, it's like the pendulum has yeah. swung, right? You know, you, you go back and forth, which is why that, that's really just a warning that, hey, whatever's hot and cool today, just, you know, give it a few, give it a moment, settle down a little bit, learn to see what's what, and then you make a decision on your own. Just don't get carried away. Yeah, that's great advice. I like working remotely and have done that now for the last five years so and sometimes i miss like the office and occasionally i have to go out into town or you know i go because i want to if any of my friends are listening which they're not <laughs> but i um you don't have you don't have friends no no i do have friends but they don't listen to go Tom. oh, oh. js party js party mate that competitor yeah so uh, and i miss it i miss the kind of uh, atmosphere uh, that you can get when you are co-located but for practical productivity i can't beat screen sharing um you know working with people have the audio on so you're sharing you're just chatting one of you sharing the screen i do pair programming a lot and so it's nice because you're not physically next to the person but you're having the same kind of experience how do you peer program without a uh, physical contact? I've never been in a situation where there's like peer programming going on. Like how do, does it work nowadays? Yeah, well, you just share the screen. That's how we do it. I do it with David. We just share the screen and one of us is driving and the other one's watching the screen. And we sort of build things together and we get the immediate knowledge share that happens automatically because we're both doing this. We also get the two minds at the same time and often we think about things in slightly different ways or we have different perspectives or we care about different things so what we end up with is usually a pretty good first version of things because it's kind of it's almost like the second version already because it's had two of us build it we also share a lot philosophically like we will happily just throw things away we're not precious about even if we spend a lot of time building it, we know that there, there's a lot of value that isn't just in the code. So throwing the code away and re restarting, things like that, which are very privileged practices to be able to do. I know a lot of dev teams, 
that sounds like a kind of crazy luxury that they just don't have. To some dev teams, testing sounds like a luxury. I mean, I think they're necessary, and that's what you have to do if you can, is fight for those things. So it's nice because there, there was actually a, a tech piece of tech. It was an app called Screen Hero that Skype bought. And Skype, may, it may have it. Um, I'm not sure if they've got it integrated or not, but... That was great because it was basically screen share with audio and it gave you two mouse pointers. One was basically fake, but it gave you the impression that the other person was sat there with you and they had their own pointer on your screen. So as you're talking, you could, you know, you can see them circling something when they're drawing your attention to it, you know, pointing about pointing about some code and say, it's this or what what about this? And they can even type too. So you could both type. So someone, if they know, oh, no, this is how we should do it, look, they can just jump in at any point. Stuff like that was just so useful for us. And we just got so good at that. We got so used to that way of working. If we meet up now in real life, we tend not to be very productive. We, we, we try and do other things other than coding. We don't meet up to code or anything like that, just because it so, works so well for us. Do you think that it's also a thing with, between you two? Like, I find it very intimidating to peer program myself, especially with people like who I've never worked with before. Um, so maybe it's just kind of also like, a, you know, just like the environment and you feel productive because of the peer, specific peer. Anyways, it's slightly a different topic, probably. <laughs> No, but it's an interesting point because you're right. You do have to, it doesn't work with everybody. It's not the same experience. In fact, every pair programming session is unique. And if, and because there's two people, you know, if it's a different person, of course, it's going to be a different dynamic. And yeah, we've just found a way where it's okay for us to be wrong. We, we aren't embarrassed if one of us is wrong. If you can get that in your team, I think you're really ahead of the curve because you have to be able to be wrong about things. Otherwise, we're going to be too careful with ideas and we're going to have to do too much research before. And, and there might be people in the team that have a similar idea, have maybe tried things before. You know, you get a lot of benefits from having that space where you can just be wrong and it's okay. Things like that definitely yeah, help. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org Kubernetes. With the pairing, I keep thinking that even even with things that I've taught or talked about or explained like a dozen times on you know wherever right it, it the moment I get on on a pairing session 
it's almost like I'm I'm seized by this sort of a. I think I think Yana might have, might have hit on the nail like this. They had the nail on the head. Basically, this this intimidation that I that I feel like that I there's a pressure to be right. Like you know, like like you're saying, uh, uh, Matt, you're you're established a rapport, right? Especially you know, I think that comes with if, if you've been working with somebody for a while. But you established a rapport that which is the fact where you can be wrong. But you know, right now at work, you know, I get to pair with you know with folks from other teams, and sometimes we're pairing for the first time. And they say basically saying, "Hey, I'm trying to do this go thing." Um, you know, they say you're the person to help, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, I feel that pressure. It's like, oh crap! Okay, I don't know who told you what. Now there's this expectation that I'm gonna solve all problems, you know, related to go. And then now, like, I feel like, okay, we're talking and we're explaining something, and I'm like, okay, normally it would be me sitting and looking at the problem and thinking of the best way to deal with it. And now you're asking me to do this in real time, right? Like, like I have to. I have to basically say, okay, um, how would I do this? How would I do this? Been, and then they're sitting there waiting for me to sort of provide, you know, some guidance and answer. And I'm like sitting there thinking like, crap, normally I'd be sitting down and thinking through this thing. I mean, it takes hours for me to come up with something good. And I, now I have to do it in real time and come up with the right design pattern, come out with the right abstraction, come out with the right way to, you know, have these go communicate with each other, whatever it is. I mean, it's like, it's, there's this, this, this pressure in the moment that just feels like insurmountable. And I mean, I think I've been getting better at it, but like for, for that reason alone, I don't enjoy pairing as much um, if I'm not doing driving. But I realize that if, if I'm going to help somebody else, they need to be the one doing the driving because they're the ones that are, are going to learn from that experience. And they can't do that if they're just watching you do the work, right? They have to do the work. So it's, it's like a personal problem that I have to kind of get over. But yeah, I'm just <laughs> pairing is just the, one of my least favorite things to do. But, I, you know, I realize I have to lean into it kind of thing. Yeah, one of the first jobs I had in tech, we were actually, actually pairing a lot. And at that time, I wish that like I was able to, you know, tell myself that like you don't have to pair. This is like only one way because it was giving me way too much stress, especially as a junior person that you don't feel that security and so on. Uh, if I can, you know, go back in time, I would probably, you know, just like tell myself that like, hey, you know, you can just like ask to work in a you know, different environment or like with like regular code reviews or whatever, which I think brings us to the uh, next question. The next question is, what advice would you give yourself at the start of your tech career? It's a great question. And I think I answered, you know, right, like I wouldn't necessarily think that peer programming is my thing. So I wouldn't really stress myself out because I'm not really good in it. Yeah, I think that's a great one. Mine would be something about it being okay to not know everything when you start a project. It was very kind of tempting to fall into this trap and believe that the best software was designed meticulously and then implemented in that kind of waterfall fashion, which is how I assumed things worked. And it wasn't until it took me years, I think, to sort of shed that and instead focus on uh, or realize really that as you're building it, you learn so much that and that sh- that should influence then what you're doing. You feel something back from the code as well as you're not just in control of it. It kind of feeds back information to you as well. So if as you're building something, something doesn't quite fit or doesn't feel right, or maybe it's just um, the abstractions wrong, something like that, 
that often in the early days felt like, well, then we'd failed, like the design had failed in some way when it hadn't, because it got us to that point where we then had the extra learning that we wouldn't have had without it. So that's the, it would be something along those lines. I mean, I'm, you know, I assume I'm there for a while if I could have to go into all this detail, but it, unfortunately not a snappy little one liner, but it was, would be something around that, I would say. Did you get that impression because of uh, your perception of like the other engineering fields? Because, you know, like the feedback loop in, in software engineering is really fast compared to everything else. Uh, you know, if you're designing cars, for example, yeah, you're designing in like you over time, yes, learn. But like it takes years and sometimes decades to actually iterate on things. And in software, it's just like the matter of weeks or days, right? Yeah, exactly. That's it. it. We do have this virtual kind of world that we are operating in and the rules are different. It's, it has its own laws of physics, kind of. So yeah, that is it. You're right. We can do things differently like that. And I think it was just a uh, kind of ignorance really to the fact that people, uh, it just seemed like that's the way you people did things. I saw, you know, in the places I worked, people would very often ask for right well give me the exact plan of what's going to happen when it's going to happen by and it felt like if you don't know these dates of when these things are going to be delivered then that was you weren't good enough or something what i didn't realize which i now know is nobody knows how long these things are going to take it's just some of us are honest about that and others for whatever reason aren't <laughs> but yeah so that those sort of things would be my I would say to my young self and, and be creative and play around. I mean, you know, when I was very young, what first interested me and got me interested in programming was that I could control this kind of crazy world in ways which were unique and just felt kind of, it was amazing to be able to do this. You know, we do things like write out the computer games from magazines and we, we, we wrote a pool game once and we were able to dig around in the, uh, had these arrays that described where the pockets were. So we we're able to make the pockets really big. And so then we were able to play this pool game with massive pockets, you know, and so that sort of control, and it was a childlike sort of thing of being able to manipulate this kind of world and do these crazy things. And that uh, is still what drives me to do things today. That never changed. Um, so that would be more advice for my young self would be, and I do say this to people, it's okay to play and to do things for fun. I mean, if you do, then your work is much more enjoyable, much easier. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like work. Yeah, totally. Even like it's trying to, you know, estimations is completely, I think, you know, nonsense. But even if you want to estimate, you know, you just <laughs> want to play around just a bit, like have a POC or whatever, just kind of like understand what are some of the trade-offs and so on, some of the difficulties and so on before actually saying anything, right? Yeah. Another, another similar piece of advice I would say as well is the, if you do TDD or if you, if you into testing a lot, there are times when prototyping and playing around uh, is what's needed for you to figure out what to do. And tests can get in the way sometimes for that. It depends. Because if you, you sometimes need to know exactly what you're going to build for the test for, to get the testing right. You know, so sometimes now I'll, I will actually do, do some prototyping first, get a sense of what kind of thing this is going to be. And then I'll actually start with some tests and make sure I've got some bits that I'm 
kind of confident or good foundations to build on. Um, but yeah, so again, it, it tends to come down to being a bit more relaxed and not too strict about things, you know, because it is a it is a complicated process. I mean, building writing software is absurd, absurdly complicated, and I'm I'm constantly surprised anything's working at all, ever. Uh, but it 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 does. John, you've been quiet. No, I was just thinking. I guess. For me, I think the biggest thing I would tell myself isn't specific to coding. It's more like what to expect in a work environment. I thought you were honestly going to say the lottery or something. <laughs> Here are your numbers. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be so much go. It would be more about what to expect in the lottery numbers. <laughs> no, like, Sorry, mate. What I mean is um, I think a lot of people graduate and they go take a job and they're like, all right, you're going to be a junior engineer or whatever. You're going to have a mentor. And in their mind, what they expect that to be versus what it actually is, is very different. I think in your head, you imagine I'm going to have this guy who's going to, a guy or girl, whatever, who's going to look over my shoulder, show me when I'm doing things wrong, like going to be there. And they forget that this mentor is somebody who has their own job. They have their own work to get done. And like, depending on how much time they have, they can check some things, but you still have to go figure a lot of this out on your own. And I know like at some of my first companies I worked at, I would get thrown all these different technologies and all these things. Um, like Google is especially kind of rough with that where they have all this internal stuff and it's all really useful. But when you're first learning it all, it can feel overwhelming. So there's a while where you feel like you're just drowning in all this stuff and you really like you kind of doubt whether you should be there at times. And I, from, from talking to people, I've, I've learned now that that's kind of normal. You know, it's just too much for somebody to comprehend all at once. You sort of take it one small step at a time. And you, you know, gradually improve and learn about more stuff and you, you know, do, do the best you can. But it, it's kind of rough when you're there in the moment, just thinking like, how am I ever going to get through all this? How am I going to figure out how these things work? You know, like, and uh, you don't have a mentor who's there showing you every step of the way. So like, it just can be like, you feel like you're failing, even though you're not. So I'd probably just sort of have a conversation around that sort of aspect of like, it's okay to feel lost or confused or to feel like you don't know everything. Like that's normal. And, you know, in 10 years from now, you'll be amazed at how much you know and how much you take for granted that like you, you'll be almost making the same mistakes that current senior engineers are making where they're just assuming, you know, all these things and it's not intentional. It's just 10 years brings you a lot of knowledge and experience that you just, it's hard to, you know, forget that that's or you know, that that's all stuff you know. Yeah, it's a really good point, especially like the questioning. And sometimes you question yourself because the tools are broken or like not documented, whatever. You immediately think that the problem is you, but it's actually like the environment and everything is like always like you know no, nothing is really well polished or like complete in tech. Uh, everything has like lots of bugs, like all these like legacy decisions. So you're somewhat questioning yourself because it doesn't truly align with what is maybe the ideal. And then, you know, you have to accumulate some knowledge and experience in order to understand why things ended up being that way. And, you know, that, that comfort, I think, comes in eventually because you understand how the industry works and, you know, how, like, everything is, like, completely always broken and it really depends on the specific, you know, experience, whatever. I always try to, you know, tell people that, like, you know, if... If you kind of like are struggling with a tool or with some any library or whatever, it's not you. It's just like, you know, everything is completely broken all the time. And you, <laughs> you know, and the easiest way to do is to be able to access to the right people to ask how it works. Um, so I think, you know, it's just hard when you're very junior, but that's the only way, I guess. 
So <laughs> my advice I give to myself. What I've found, and you can all probably attest to this as well, is that over time I've found myself being concerned less with the technical aspect of things and more with the sort of, uh, we like to call it soft skills in this industry, but I think they're just skills, honestly. The the lessons, basically, that, that I've taken to heart over the last, yeah, I think, uh, I've, forgotten, I've forgotten how long I've been doing this at this point now, <laughs> but uh, basically the core lessons for me, um, the first one I'd, I'd say I'd give to myself and perhaps anybody out there who's had a similar path is basically you'll never be good at estimating um, simply because you can't predict the future, right? You might get better by some definition of better um, at estimating, but there's too many variables that you certainly do not control on the business side and maybe on the marketing side and whatever, right? There's, there are things at play that you do not control that, you know, trying to put a specific date or time frame on something, especially something that is like not quite yet defined. It's just futile. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for at least 20 years and I've never, never been successfully able to, to do that. So at some point I realized, okay, it's not me, right? I can't blame myself for being bad at estimating. It's just the nature of the business, right? It's just the nature of the beast. So chill with that, right? Yeah. It reminds me of what John said earlier about you, you feel like you're failing, but you're not. And estimations do that to us as well. We feel like if, if we don't hit our deadlines, we feel bad. <laughs> well, these deadlines yep. were, they were crazy in the first place. And so we should really mm-hmm. shouldn't feel bad, but we d- we do. And when people say, uh, "Oh, just we just want a ballpark number," you're not going to hold you to it. <laughs> and I just want to say, Lies. Why, why did we just work the weekend then? Right? Because it Lies. does happen. It, people do tie other commitments to it. It does get into the into the other side of the business, the, the side of it, which is whatever isn't the tech bit. But yeah, so we are asked to, I think, do our best or whatever. But yeah, it's, I just think it's a bad practice. And I think I like the sort of agile, the idea of be very, um, make, expose the progress, show people the progress. And that, and that, that's a great way to get a sense of what's actually happening. Because that's often what people, sometimes that's really what they really want from these estimations. They just want to make sure things are happening. And it might be their job to make sure things are happening. And so we, there might be other ways that we can, we can do that. But yeah, it is one of those things where you constantly were feeling like we were behind and late and we weren't, we really weren't. We were very fast and, and delivering, you know, very rapidly. Um, so it should feel like that. Yeah, we never value the ambiguity. Um, we, I think our company is doing a better job, like some sort of like they, measure like if you want to go become a very senior engineer it's just like your skills to deal with the ambiguity and it's not about the technical challenges it's about the business challenges uh, it's about like you know negotiating people like communicating things uh, it's, isn't it like funny that like we call this stuff soft skills like these are very hard stuff and it's just like completely not up to you you may have like some skills or like you may just help the situation but it's just like extraordinarily complicated you need to have like really good skills all across, including technical skills to deal with any of this. And you sort of like feel like the only limit is just becoming this type of issues. Uh, you know, like technically, I think everything is possible. I mean, not everything is possible. I think technical problems are easy. The actual limitations are this type of problems. Um, and it's amazing that we call them, underestimate them as soft skills. Personally, I think these are part of problem-solving skills. 
And for me, the best way of understanding problems is to basically understand the business you're in. And that means you're talking to people that are not other, you know, uh, techies, right? That are not in the room coding with you or designing with you or whatever, right? So you have to actually step outside of your bubble to understand basically the greater um, world around you and the people you work with. And, you know, hey, take the salesperson out, you know, for coffee and get them to explain what the process is like. You know, go sit down with marketing and, and see what they do all day, right? How to, and, 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 you know, talk to operations, right? The business operations folks and see what they, I mean, you, you're going to get a view of the business that is going to inform how you solve problems and, and actually recommend solutions that keep moving a ball forward, right? So, but that starts with people and being able to interact with people. So along those lines, I usually tell people like, look, at the end of the day, the, the tech is a tool that enables some entity to arrive at a particular goal. Be that goal money or, you know, um, doing good in the world, whatever the case may be, right? Tech is a tool, right? And, and you're a specialist, you know, who knows how to use the tool. So tech doesn't matter as much as people, right? So, you know, be kind, right? And interact, learn or interact, right? Give of yourself, <laughs> give and you will receive, right? Not money, but, you know, time, like give of yourself, right? So, and and the, basically along those lines, the last thing I'll, I'll add is I basically, I've found in, in over time, yeah, I like to use that phrase sort of ego is the enemy. Like I've found like over time, like basically the, the your ego yourself is always putting obstacles in your way, right? The, the whole thing I talked about earlier about when I, when I pair, I feel the intense pressure to perform, right? That's ego, right? That's basically saying, hey, you better look good. Our survival depends on it, right? <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, there's a constantly, you have this voice in the back of your head like saying, hey, you know, oh, you, oh, you messed up here, man. Like you shouldn't have done that. Or, or you got to say the perfect thing here. Or you got to be the perfect person here. I mean, that's like basically just, just in, in, you know, ca- causing you to act a certain way, causing you to act selfishly, causing you to like, you know, to pretend to be things or not. All these things, you know, that's just part of the self and keeping tabs on, t- stay on top of that. I mean, honestly, that's, that's the part, that's the next decade over, over my, my, my life that I'm honestly trying to work on is basically trying to identify when ego's taking me for a ride and just kicking them out the car. Mm, great. Yeah, you know that little small voice in your head that tells you not to say things? <laughs> what, what is that? How do you get one? <laughs> you want one of those? Is it like an in-app purchase? <laughs> That'd be good if you could just in-app purchase stuff into your brain, wouldn't it? We think of like it's the Matrix, but it, it wouldn't be free, would it? You're gonna have to pay for that if you want to. Die. If you want to learn how to fly that helicopter, sit down, no, put your head, put this in your head, but you know, put your credit card here. Yes. That's how it would be. But that's great advice, Johnny. Actually, and I also do recognise that. And and that's the thing about finding a good partner and a good team to work with is if you can. If, if they're decent people as well, it's easier to get over some of that things. And you can sometimes be honest about it and say, yeah, do you know what? I think I was unreasonable there or whatever. You can sort of be a little bit more open about these kinds of things and then you can move past it and stuff. I think that's great. Yeah, I think in order to like let go of the ego, you need to be vulnerable a bit. And, you know, this also works the same way in relationships, um, any sort of relationship. And I think like, a couple of years ago, I was in a sort of like a situation where I finally ended up feeling more comfortable being vulnerable and it completely changed my life. I finally understood, you know, what I need to do and to do the next thing. And now, like similarly to Johnny, probably I will spend the next 10 years working on this type of skills. I think it's, I mean, it goes to show that 
when Matt talks about pair programming all this time, he talks about a co-founder that he's been doing this with for a long, long time. And whenever you talk about like when you feel uncomfortable, it's with new people. It's with people you don't have that trust with or that relationship with. And I suspect that's part of the reason why, like, I know I'm included in this. I don't like doing live, just live streaming myself coding on like Twitch or something, because I'm like, if I make a mistake, there's going to be that one person there who like makes a big deal out of it. And it's like, we all make mistakes. Uh-huh. But somebody's going to be like, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Like, you know, he, he did that mistake. So you just get worried and paranoid. But like, I also know that I've done screen sharing, like to either to review code or to look at some tough parts of a you know code base. It a startup I was at a while back and it was like the actual founder and I both did this all the time, but we had a really good relationship and that just made it like, I didn't mind jumping in there and being like, I have no idea what's going on here or how to deal with this. And it was easy to solve. And like, we both had that relationship where he could do that with me too. And it, it solved a lot of problems. But when you don't know somebody, it's hard because you're like, how are they going to react when like, that's what I have to tell them is like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, from a tech leadership point of view, it's a red flag when somebody never says, I don't know. If there's somebody who's always certain about everything, then they probably, obviously they're not. Something else is going on. So that's a good bit of advice, I think, for people is, you know, um, it, and again, it's very easy for me to say this, and we're, we're now more senior, so it is easier to struggle to remember what it was really like. Although it's not, it's not that many years ago, is it? Come on. Uh, some good leaders actually like create some opportunity, but, you know, make themselves look vulnerable. Like they even actually like just create situations that like they can easily like say that like, hey, I don't know, we need to understand this, whatever. So they would like just like keep reminding you that like, um, you know, nothing, it's not you, it's not your lack of knowledge or experience or whatever. So that's like one step, I think, further saying I don't know is like a good step but like if you actively are creating those moments that just really gives a lot of comfort to people Mm. around you yeah that's interesting I know I did a pair programming session a few years ago with a more junior developer and we were plowing through something and it was kind of halfway through I realized that I'm probably just going way too fast and making this look like I probably look really good doing it, but I make this look really hard and like you have to be some, uh, you know, a me amazing coder to be able to do it, which of course isn't the case. And so, yeah, you're right. You have to sort of be mindful of that as well. I was just doing my thing, trying to solve a problem and I wasn't bringing people along with me in that case. So that was an important lesson for me. I think it's a, it is kind of a great way to work, but yeah, it, it does rely on that sort of uh, trust in the teams and things. And, and I think you're right, being vulnerable and admitting, yeah, I don't know about this. We're going to have to figure it out together and we'll succeed together or we'll, we won't succeed together, you know. It's better because you, you remove any of this sort of, a lot of these personal uh, difficult challenges that people feel you can remove a lot just by having a slightly different culture like that yeah i think you even see it with like how people react to issues like we've all heard those stories about like oh some junior developer deleted the whole database or something like that and how the company responds to that like demonstrates how they're going to take that vulnerability like how they're going to treat it very like it's a very clear indicator so like when you see a company that's like well this happened it shouldn't have been able to happen like we're not blaming him here's how we're fixing it um, like then you're like, okay, I have way more confidence in, you know, being vulnerable here. But when you see the person get fired, you're like, well, time to not let anybody know about my mistakes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a bad signal. Yeah, Cloudflare did it recently. There was an issue um, that was just a bad config file that got pushed or something. And they're just sort of transparent about it, open about it. And people were asking, and someone said, you know, is this person going to be fired or something? And the answer was no. I think the CTO said, uh, no, these, these things happen. You know, it's a process issue we have to look at. And I think that is the right attitude. Yeah, because otherwise what happens? Think about what happens to, if you create these sort of toxic cultures. I mean, this is a whole other area, I think, for another another time. I believe our hour has uh, come up now. Thank you very much to everybody for joining me, Yana, John and Johnny. And we'll see you next time on Go Time. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows. Connect with other members of the community. Share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time. Find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelaw master in your podcast client you'll find us thanks for tuning in we'll see you next week